Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp and I'm really excited today to be sitting in the store of a friend of mine who has an interesting story to tell you. The store is called Dispatch and it is based in Valencia Street uh, in San Francisco and it's the seller of many items which I would loosely qualify as rugged, urban and somewhat military inspired uh, bags, camera straps and other things. And I wanted to have a chat with Richard because he's got an interesting story having come from one type of background, I won't spoil the story yet, uh, and then moving into sort of the retail brand industry and it's a very interesting story. So maybe we can start with a little bit of the background. Um, we always like to begin with kind of what you studied and, and sort of what you did in the early career before you, you went into sort of your main job and then eventually dispatch. So what did, what did you, where did you go to school, what did you study? Yeah, sure. And, and first of all, thank you for having me. Um, so I uh, went to school at University of California, Davis, um, in Davis, California, about two hours north of San Francisco. I studied managerial economics, which is a, another way of phrasing business administration or management or, or kind of just general business. And uh, graduated back in 2005 um, without a whole clear idea of what I wanted to do afterwards, and especially since you know, the coursework is pretty, it's pretty general. I mean, you take a little bit of everything, but what that leaves you with is without a clear direction afterwards. So um, I moved back home and my family's from San Jose. Uh, my first job was at a startup called SearchRev in Palo Alto. And it was a ad technology startup focused on paid search, um, particularly automation, multivariate testing, things that you see still very alive and well today uh, in the digital advertising space. So. Um, I was employee number eight or nine, I believe. Started just a campaign manager, um, running campaigns, looking at bids and Google AdWords. And you know the space was hot and took off and the company grew over my three years there to about 60, 70 people. Mm -hmm. And my role changed and I pretty much served every purpose while I was there. I, you know, I was managing, hiring people, training them. Um, I was part of the sales team going out and Playing, serving the roles of sales engineer slash onboarding specialist. And you know, one of my best memories from it was actually spending about six months out in the UK helping launch the UK office. Um, everything from getting the servers up and running and, and onboarding our first few clients out there. And um, the company was acquired um, uh, by AKQA, a much larger agency. And you know, I'd been there for three and a half years. It was my first job out of college. And um, you know, I, I have to admit I had a little bit of that allure of working for a big name company, you know, mm -hmm. having the badge, it was Silicon Valley and everyone was on, you know, the shuttles weren't around yet, but you know, people were kind of picking and, and choosing their teams. Had the buzz. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I, I, I always was a big fan of eBay in college. That's kind of how you earn your income when you're a young college kid, you sell things. And so um, I had a chance to join the PayPal team. And so I, jo I joined it as a production team person on the marketing team and it was it was exciting it was great three and a half years I spent there and then I eventually moved to full-blown marketing doing um, consumer acquisition part of the mobile team um, and really kind of cutting my teeth as a corporate marketer and which was night and day from the startup world in the startup world the ones that are successful the customers kind of come to them I mean yes yeah. you have to reach out a little bit but it's new technology so people mm -hmm. are kind of interested already whereas PayPal is in this interesting space where there were other new technologies coming up on board. I mean, Square was kind of emerging when I was uh, my, by near the end of my time there. So um, it was 
the marketing was gigantic. We had reorgs. I learned all about reorgs. Nice. <laughs> and that's a, 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 definitely a lesson I think most people need to go through and understand what that means. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so near the end of my time there, uh, I, I had an opportunity to join LinkedIn as a product marketer. And you know, in my opinion, product marketing is one of the most challenging sides of marketing, the most dynamic sides. Why is that? Because you're trying to you're you're trying to create it's almost like a micro brand because you know when you're in digital advertising you get a spreadsheet you get numbers and you make a decision up or down basically you know increase or decrease are the two decisions you make yeah um, when you're in product marketing you have to talk about customer touch points first trial experience how do you message out when you make changes to the product there's eight or nine floating orbs that you have to constantly be monitoring at every time and at any given moment one two or five of them can turn red and then you have to figure out how to fix it all in a cohesive message. So, um, and even more, even better than that, I was the product marketing lead for the mobile team. So it was cool role on a cool team. Uh, had to give it a shot. Um, and you know, LinkedIn. Looking back on it, was you know my most enjoyable time in my career, as far as um, learning, gaining experience, working with incredibly smart people. And you know, when I joined the, the mobile team, it was just. The first rev of the LinkedIn app, I think they just released the beta for the Android. So it was a cool time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and part of my time there, we got to see the complete revamp of the LinkedIn app. That was when it, it turned from kind of the uh, micro version of the website to a whole unique, unique experience on its own. And launched the iPad app, got to try to find a way to you know, see how that fits into the workflow. Um, and lots of other great projects. So LinkedIn was a great time. and then. During this time, however, kind of leading into um, where we are today uh, yeah. as far as running dispatches, um, I started doing some work on the side, just as helping friends out, you know, exploring kind of the more creative side um, uh, that I haven't really, you know, those muscles I haven't exercised in a while. I was doing photography, I was doing websites, I was doing social media stuff, you know, all things that kind of related to my main job, but I also could learn and research on the side. And um, that's kind of where Dispatch hatched. I mean, I think we'll get into started, more of it. But, it. but it started kind of a very small and very humble beginning because you had this, this exploration. And I remember very uh, vividly the, 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 the first sort of, I think it was Zeit or Flipboard when I first discovered mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of M1A1 inspired strap for your you know, mirrorless camera. And I remember that that was like the first product. And, and I guess I'm curious, it's like you have a idea of a brand, you had an idea of you wanted to create something, but there was a couple of things you made very distinct decisions. Maybe you didn't do them on purpose, but you A, chose a specific piece of uh, product in a specific industry, in this case it was cameras, and with a specific angle, which was the sort of quasi-military-esque. Maybe you can walk us through kind of the origins of all that, because it's very easy when you see one product and you say, oh, this is a summary of all that, but actually the process of getting there is actually quite probably took several months, if not more, in thinking about that. So maybe you can explore that a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, to, to take a step backward, I think the premise was, how does someone that has no, I think, institutionally trained design skill, but a ton of corporate and startup marketing skill, how does it look, how does a product look like if someone from a that different angle creates a product, you know? and. Um, you know, I meet a lot of people, a lot of designers, a lot of people that have gone to school and they have you know, degrees and lots of great work they've done with their different clients. Mm. I didn't have any of that. 
so um, the when I started out, it wasn't it wasn't to be sold actually. To be honest, I I had been helping a few other brands, and to be during that time, my, my real plan was actually to join another brand and help them out. I'm not necessarily as my main career, maybe on the side. Any brands know. that stood out? So the one brand that I really that I actually worked for and, and helped for a long time was uh, a jean company called 316. Okay. Um, that's the number three and then 16 spelled out. And they have an interesting story as well. They started in kind of the streetwear, young, young adult world, and they moved into the kind of high fashion, high fashion, um, high-end denim game, basically. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were making jeans, and, and I kind of tagged along. I learned the ins and outs of yeah. it. Um, but going back to the original question of, of making the product, so um, A, it started out just for something for me to use. Mm-hmm. I, the branding stuff came out later on, but what I was really trying to figure out is, you know, I had this new camera. I bought this tiny little Leica. Uh, it comes with a, you know, 12-inch, 3-8-inch wide strap. Embarrassing one with, like, the letters of the brand. The letters of the brand are on it, and when I wear it, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot one, and so when I wear it, it's square in the middle of my chest. Just not not where you not how you want to carry uh, your new toy, not the way you want to carry your new toy. And yeah. I knew there were some aftermarket supplies out there. You know, I a lot of it was from Japan. They're in the ninety to one hundred fifty dollar range, like hand vegetable tan leather things like that. I like things like that. I don't need it for my camera strap. You know, maybe my watch strap, not a camera strap. So I just started doing research. I started going doing research on webbing and different things you can use to uh, use as a camera strap what other people were using, and, and the, the original material we use, which we still use today, which is mil-spec nylon webbing. Mm-hmm. Um, that we can go into the ins and outs of why I chose that, but it, it was lightweight, it was rugged, durable, um, and it had a nice matte finish, which I liked, um, nothing too shiny. So, you know, I set about just, just making one, and um, I had a lot of books on military design just because it's been a personal interest of mine. Um, actually, the backpack idea came first, that was something I'd been kind of working on for a long time. Never really seriously thinking of doing, but I just was a fan of it. So I bought books on World War One, World War Two, different eras of standard issue military gear, mm-hmm. why they designed things the way they did. And going back to the M1A1 rifle sling, that was just one of the pictures I'd seen there. And I remember thinking back on it when I was making the camera strap, like, hey, that's a good platform to work off of. You know, being that I don't have a professional design background, I can't just create things out of my mind. I needed a platform to work off of. And so um, took some of the design cues from there, a lot of the, you know, being able to lengthen or shorten the camera strap, but maybe not so much all the time, which is a certain type of camera strap. People like that, the quick uh, release and adjust. We don't do that. We just do the, you do it once, and then it's pretty much good to go forever. so, you know, we made our, I made my first few just with local sewing shops. I would just go in and say, hey, can you sew this for me? And they would charge me an insane amount, but, you know, they're only making two of them, three of them for me. Yeah. And, uh, and then I had a product, and I was, I was using it myself. And this is kind of the, you know, the age-old story. People were asking me, you know, where'd you get that? Where can I get one? And so I started to give it a shot, just had to give it a shot. I, I'd failed on a couple other ventures already before, nothing too big. A website idea here, a t-shirt thing there, um, failed miserably. So I'd, I'd kind of gotten, uh, I was still licking my wounds a little bit, but um, this one I thought, you know, what the hell, just try it out. Turns out that's the one that kind of stuck, so it's been good so far. So that, so that was a very good sort of overview of how some of the elements of the early dispatch brand 
came about. Um, but that's kind of uh, still very much like step one of a hundred to go from a product you built for yourself to then having a brand name associated with it, which is actually quite a crafty name, right? Like you, you kind of, it's a reductionist <laughs> name, which is in a way visible in your products. And so many times founders are, are in admiration of other people's brands that are very sort of succinctly put, like Nike's just do it. And you look at the, the genesis of that and you wonder how did that happen? So you know, you, you, if we kind of fast forward to that point where you had the, the strap, you had people coming to you, you had customer validation because you had people coming to you. There was a point when you made a transition to, okay, I'm gonna call this this and I'm gonna label like such and I'm gonna create my website and I'm gonna build a business around this. What, what, was, what was going on there? How did you polish it to that point and then, then what? Yeah, so um, the name, you kind of hit it on the head, which has the, the military roots. Um, it doesn't have a real, I think, aha moment. It was one of those words that had been floating around my head while I was doing the research. The branding really came alive more so, I'd say, as the product developed. So I didn't have it all figured out. You know, and a lot of those questions that you, you just proposed, they weren't answered yet. But I knew I wanted to start a certain way. I had a fuzzy idea. Um, you know, I was kind of at the, the, you know, the edge of the forest and I was just saying, okay, I, I kind of like this path. I'm gonna just keep going down it. And then things materialized, um, color was added down the road. Um, obviously, it, it, it was easy to grasp onto. You know, I had the military materials, I had the military roots. The name Dispatch itself has military roots as well, though it has meanings aside from that. Um, you know, yeah, a lot of it came out. I mean, I'm not a branding expert, mm. and I have, a, I have some ideas of marketing and why people love brands the way they mm. do. I have certain opinions about that. Mm. Um, but I, I'd say it was definitely from a very, let's try this out, let's keep going with it, and we'll tweak later on if we need to. Mm. Um, you know, we add the tagline, so the tagline, substance-driven design, we has kind of made appearances here and there and then disappeared here and there. Um, you know, it's still true. I wanted the company to always remain more of a design company than a lifestyle company. Mm -hmm. So being product focused versus, you know, the type of stuff that, you know, the, the type of lifestyle someone would, would have by using the product. You know, I really wanted this universal approach to everything. So that's why everything I chose came from a, it doesn't matter what age, size, shape, color you are, you probably need something like this because it's functionality driven. So yeah. um, that was the, the kind of the genesis where it was a very, I'd say amorphous idea with some clear direction. And yeah. then it kind of narrowed down and focused as, you know, we, you know, the first two years, the company, we only sold three products, the wrist strap, the sling strap and the keychain. Yeah. And that was pretty much it. We added a few colors here and there, you know, um, so we didn't really have a lot of not new product coming out. Without, without having that many products to sort of indicate a, uh, let's say, a, a, a exponentially growing business, at which point did you say, I'm, I'm quitting, I'm quitting LinkedIn? Like, uh, because at some point you were in this really weird phase of you have a, a passionate audience of early adopters. You probably, and actually I'd be curious to hear kind of the logistics behind a manufacturing business where, of course, the, it wasn't like you were shipping, you know, big items, but still, like deliveries, returns, uh, defects, and all these kinds of things. And at the same time, 
having this be a project that you're doing on the side and then wondering when you're gonna, like if there's something there enough. So maybe that, that bit of the story as well. Yeah, so I, I'd say that's probably the most interesting part of the story, the first two years. Um, it, it, was, it was chaotic to say the least, but it, it was a fun chaos. So uh, it definitely passed by very quickly. So just like you said, we were a small batch manufacturer. You know, our first run, I think we made 20 or 30 of them. Uh, we were working through a friend who was able, who was a pattern maker at a local designer's, and they were able to get the sewers there to help make them on their, you know, free time. And, you know, I, I, would, I would admit, honestly, if we had reached, we had hit any major obstacle in the early days, I don't know if we would have kept going. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't this we have to do it kind of situation. It was one of those, well, things are still going, you know? And, and the, the proudest thing I have to say about the product itself is that we didn't do any paid advertising, you know? Um, we did some banner ads here and there, but it was mainly like we were sponsoring forums and things like that. And so they would be like, oh, by the way, we'll give you a placement. It wasn't the way we were fighting for impressions. And, you know, the product was able to carry itself for two years solely on that, solely on the social media, word of mouth. Um, you know, the camera shop has this great launch platform in the sense that the people that use cameras and accessorize their cameras are incredibly vocal, incredibly passionate. So they're always looking for the best gear. When they find it, they, they want to tell everybody. Yeah. Everyone's got a couple other camera buddies and go, by the way, I just got this new thing. So that word of mouth was really strong. Because yeah. um, it was a very small targeted group of people and they were just really passionate about this space, right? It's like one of those things where like, it just loans itself to geekiness. So you, by having a product in that very tight, very targeted customer group, it just led to more efficient word of mouth. And the timing was great too. Mm -hmm. you know, we, I had kind of seen this mirrorless micro four thirds thing. I knew it was going to stick around. It wasn't going to go anywhere. And so I try to position ourselves as specifically designed for that. And I know how much I love it when I find things that are specifically designed for a product that I have. Yeah. So uh, the timing was really great in the sense that the players were jumping in the market, the major camera makers. You know, this was before Fuji was even out. And I think the X100 was just coming out. Yeah. Um, and you're hearing stories like we're going to Japan to buy them and everything. So it was still very much so Olympus um, with their pen line and. Um, couple other players, Panasonic, of course, with their Lumix stuff. Yeah. And so the timing was right, um, but none of this was really manufactured. You know, we weren't, we weren't trying to force something that wasn't a, a, a tide that was rising on its own. So we were, we were very lucky for those two years. We didn't do any advertising. Our sales stayed strong. We did 100, over 100K our first year, and we grew 25 to 30% the second year. No paid advertising just released a few new colors. That was basically it. And so going back to the logistics side, yeah, it was nights and weekends, packing up shipping boxes, bringing them to the post office before I was heading to work. It got incredibly hard when I was doing the commute to LinkedIn because I'd have to catch shuttle at 6.30 in the morning. So, you know, you imagine if you're up till two or three in the morning packing boxes, and then, oh, by the way, you realize you have to wake up in two and a half hours. Um, there are definitely nights where we're very rough. And I was always trying to ship one day, even though it was a one-man operation. I know a lot of smaller companies, they, they give you a, a window, you know, four to six days or something. I, you know, I knew, I, I saw the behavior and we saw, you know, what Amazon was doing and everyone, every, the consumer behavior was shifting to this note right away, you should send it right away. So we were trying to maintain that and, you know, we w I would make drop-offs late at night, I would, um, on the weekends, we were completely dedicated to it. 
and we were just doubling up. So going back to the bootstrapped roots of not taking external investment, it was it was basically you know we would make the camera straps, sell them, and then make enough to you know four times our last run, and then keep doubling or tripling or whatever amount we had in the bank, and then whatever we had left over, I was just saving to the side. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. Um, we didn't need to make more camera. We couldn't store any more camera straps. So um, we'll we'll get probably get into that more into where the company is today, but. Um, yeah, we were by at the end of it making you know thousands of camera straps at a time, storing it in my apartment. Um, on the weekends, we would have friends and family come over, help us check them all, package them, get them ready for shipping. And uh, I was just bringing, walking the orders over to USPS myself to to get them shipped out. So um, definitely very <laughs> humble beginnings for us. And then and then at what point did you say enough? I'm done with my my commute. I'm done with you know. TPS reports and whatnot, and <laughs> I'm, I'm going off. It was tough. I, I mean, it was tough. I mean, I, I mean, obviously it's very tough, but I, I enjoyed my job. I didn't hate it. I think mm -hmm. when I tell the story to people, they, they think, oh, yeah, you were chained to the desk. Now you're free. Yeah, I didn't feel chained. I, I didn't mind it. Yeah, there are certain benefits here and there, but there's also certain drawbacks as well as with any decision you make. So um, I think the time came where... We've been approached by a major retailer to carry the camera straps. It's a retailer, you know, they're in, they're in malls, they're all over the world. But, you know, in my mind, from you knowing what I know from the creative background, it's, it does potentially take away from the brand a little bit to increase your distribution to that scale. And most people would say, well, you're insane. You know, you want the big order. You want the, take the big order. But, you know, it was at the point, I, it was still a hobby, so I was like, why don't, why don't I just do the, the best thing I can to protect the brand? Because I don't need to grow it. You know, I don't need to do anything right now that I don't want to do. And I'm not a personal fan of the store. I don't go there ever. They do, they do a lot of sales. And um, you know, from the get-go, I was trying to push this. Dispatch is not a company that puts their products on sale. You know, we, there's, no, there's no reason to. I mean, we don't have, you know, unless we need to pay some bills, I guess. But doesn't go out of style, the colors aren't going to change, yeah. there's no reason to put clearance pricing on it. And when you go get a big box retailer, that's what they do, you know. So we're at this crossroads. We had this money saved up that I already mentioned. And so going also, the other thing I mentioned before, which was the backpack idea. Mm. And so finally I said, you know, we have this money saved up. And if I make a backpack and I don't sell any of them, and I just have a backpack of my own that I can use that I designed, that would be good enough for me. So we said, you know, let's go for it and let's try to make some other product. Let's expand our product line. Um, let's jump to something completely different. And so um, we started that process. I think before I left the, the full-time gig, um, I was, you know, we were hired designer, working with the factory, and we released the, we, like the cases first, the small little accessories first. And Finally, um, things were started going out. I started um, previewing the bags, people, and at that time we had about ten stores wholesaling our stuff, and um, you know, great relationships we built with local boutiques, and you know, they liked it. They they wanted to carry it. So at that point was where I was really like, okay, let's give this thing a shot. Um, I think we can. I, I'm I'm at the point where I could be doing a lot more for the company full time. Mm. And so you know, I talked it over with my fiance, now wife, mm -hmm. um, fiance at the time, and you know she was supportive. So quit my job, uh, and then on in January, 
of 2013, yeah, 2013, first month of floating out in there, we opened an office in the mission, uh, hired two employees to help us do the camera strap packaging, and yeah, just waited for the bag to hit. We released them, I think, in April, and you know, people liked them. You know, it was. It was the same customer that liked our camera strap, liked the idea of functionality over style, but you know, still a little bit of everything, and also being made in the U.S. You know, that was also a big wave that was we kind of rode on for a while as well. So I, I want to get back to the backpack thing in a second, but before we go there, um, I want to take a step back and, and, and talk about that early go-to-market strategy, because one thing was your pull go-to-market, which came from riding the mirrorless uh, wave, but another one is approaching retailers and how much of that was they just came to you so you were just riding the wave and they acknowledged the wave and you just happened to be the brand that they wanted to partner up with or how much of that was you going out and sort of pounding the street so to speak to get those deals it was overwhelmingly the former of them approaching us I mean there were a couple that were friends or people knew the buyers and I would just send them some stuff um, the easiest thing to do is send them a camera shop if you know they have a camera and just be like, hey, I know you, you, I know you have a camera, I saw it on Twitter or Instagram or something, here's a strap. Um, I, don't, I don't do as much anymore, but in the early days, you know, I would do it from store buyers, store employees, um, or even up to like major designers, you know, that I would just, I wouldn't know them, I would just say, hey, we make camera straps, can I, can I send you one? And you know, who's gonna say no to that? Yeah. So, um, I think the uh, the retail the wholesale strategy it was a lot of you know these these stores these buyers I mean they're out there they they their job is to know what's on the market what people want mm. one strategy I would say we did differently though is we turned down all camera shops in the early days mm. there's too much competition in there and I th and I felt like the story of trying to explain the functionality of the strap, the story of it being made in USA, and the materials being all, you know, mil-spec was too much to handle for these big camera stores, or even small camera stores, that had 50, or not 50, that's too many, like 8 to 10 other options hanging on the shelf. Yeah. So, you know, we went for the men's boutiques in the early days, so a lot of the high-end stores that I knew they were selling like leather bracelets, leather keychains. Well, it's, it's interesting because, right, you're, you, you made a distinction, and I'm going to sort of maybe try to qualify that distinction. You made a distinction between using a channel that is lifestyle, emotional reasons why you purchase something, and not having a product next to feature-based selling, which is what happens in a camera store. It's like, these are the features why this camera is better. Those camera salespeople are trained to distinguish on features, so you didn't want people thinking about your product on a feature-by-feature -feature basis. Rather, you wanted it to people to emotionally love it and be like, I love this because it has something for me. So that's an interesting, interesting point. Yeah, and, and also in, in the boutiques, they could tell that story, going back to those different points about the camera strap. Mm. I mean, I, I would say most people come in, they see the color, they see the camouflage pattern, they go, ooh, I like that. Mm. Um, but it, those in the, 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 the sales associates at all those boutiques, and I, I knew many of them, um, they, were, they were product geeks. They loved it. You mm. know? They weren't just trying to tell you which one of the few you should pick. They were just saying, they were telling more so why this is great, why this product is awesome, yeah. why it's worth the money. I mean, it's not a, it's And not they knew you, though, right? 
No, I met them over the time. So whenever mm-hmm. we open, a lot of times when we open new wholesale accounts, I would go visit, build that one-on-one relationship, mm-hmm. um, and how give out camera straps to the employees if they had cameras. Yeah. And how much did you do, by, just curious, any kind of secret shopping where you're trying to see how people were representing your brand um, at the retail location, right? Because in, in some ways, people might have a view and to some extent, you know, knowing you and some of the story, you represent your brand and somebody can misrepresent your brand. How, how did you double, double check or in any way make sure that that story that was being told and those channels were, was consistent with what you wanted? Um, I didn't, I couldn't, yeah. you know, I, I, when I was lucky, I'd make the first visit. Um, I, I had a couple, I'd say, good habits that I tried to follow, which is, you know, visiting the store, going a little early so I can talk. You know, I meet the, most of these boutiques, the buyers don't work there, right? They, yeah. they just pop in every now and then. But I would go early or I'd go the day before if I was in town and just talk to the employees and, and chat with them and ask them any questions or, and bring a couple keychains with me to give it to them. So um, it was definitely much more of a personal one-on-one relationship, hoping that something would stick and that they would have this great story to tell. I mean, they're looking for great stories to tell customers. Oh yeah, this is a brand from San Francisco. Yeah. It's this guy who makes these things. You know, when you give them that ammunition, they are, they're dying to use it. So uh, it wasn't so much a targeted approach in that aspect. Yeah. It was much more a aspirational, like I'm just gonna be friendly to everyone and see what happens. Yeah. And, and I paid out a lot of times. But I mean, it's, it's true, like on the one hand, like meeting you and, and sort of hearing your story, you live your brand. It wasn't like some, some fake thing you came up with, which you're misrepresenting. In other words, like you, you are living your brand and, and when people meet you, you would see where there's a, a, a relationship there and therefore it's easier for other people to tell a story on your behalf because it's genuine. Yeah, that's the authenticity. And that was one thing going back to my tech background that I had gone, gotten a little disenfranchised with, nothing personally with any company I worked with, but I had seen the writing on the wall as far as, you know, technology is great when it changes lives, when it's impactful. And at the time when I was still involved and working in tech, I had seen this wave of stuff that coming out that you'd honestly say, are you even using that? You know, like maybe you can convince some investors that are like not really people doing it, but they are like trying to get an idea of it that you're the next one. But none, it seemed highly iterative. It seemed highly... You know, I wouldn't say it's not authentic because it's, it's a real idea, but mm-hmm. it was something that wasn't really changing people's lives. It was mm-hmm. just a little bit different, your way versus their way, you know? Yeah. And so I, I, it's probably too long of a conclusion to draw that I, I, that directly impacted what I was doing with Dispatch. But I think I got a taste for what it's like to have an authentic product for something yeah. that people really need, really get excited about. And I tried to carry that story as much as I could. And, you know, I didn't do any measurement on whether it was working or not. I just assumed if I keep making good decisions. I mean, that's what, when you're a one-man company, you really don't have time to do the post-analysis and then adjustment. And you're, you're doing everything on the fly. Yeah. You're answering every email based on that day, how, <laughs> how good you're feeling that day. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really, wasn't able to kind of go back and go, oh, did that work or did that not work? Yeah. It was more so, I think this is going to work. I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah. And hopefully over time, and let the let the longevity and the duration of it um, kind of tell me down the road if it worked or not. Yeah. No, that's great. And let's fast forward back to the previous um, 
point you made about backpacks. And I wanted to sort of put a marker in the timeline here because you crossed from riding the wave on a product that had been launched um, technologically, the, the mirrorless camera, and your product was sort of complementing that product, therefore you benefited from that product's growth. But backpacks is a very different story, right? Like that's like a whole different market with a lot of different competitors and you're sitting in prime San Francisco where there's you know Timbuktu, where there's Mission Workshop, there is uh, Rickshaw Bag Works, there's Chrome and all these other sort of notable brands and they're all sort of micro segmenting on like the smallest of minutia and crossing that line must have been really scary but at the same time like you had this vision from before but maybe you can walk us through kind of like, did you just plow ahead? Or did you like, wait a second, these guys are making these kinds of features and bags and stuff like that and I'm gonna sort of rethink my brand and my uh, feature set from my bag relative to my competitors. So I did a ton of research beforehand. I mean, it was not a small amount of money to pay freelancers to design bags for you. That, and that's actually one of the highest barriers to entry, I would say, is it's really expensive to find people, soft goods designers that are good, that have worked with good clients, um, to just make stuff out of scratch for you. You know, that's, it's, it's, it's fairly costly. So um, I think I saw a little hole. I think I saw a little window of opportunity. And we're still in that same window today. I mean, it's growing, but you know, compared to the names that you said before, what's the common thread between all those guys? They all started as bike messenger bags. They're all designed for riding on your bike, a messenger bag. Um, now, people have repurposed that for tech. Right? They've added a laptop compartment. The old school Chrome bags, the old school Timbuktu bags are just big. They're for bike messengers, They're right? Holes. There's big There's cavities. There's giant cavities, and they talk about canvas. You, you can put you can put beer in there and you know whatever you need and you can ride it on your back through you know the streets of San Francisco or New York or whatever um, so a lot of them operate within those confines mm. of being a bike messenger bag company now they, they've released sidelines and they all make backpacks now but you know with my corporate background I got to go back and tap on that again which was in the business travel space there are a lot of players but none of them were connecting with the new wave of young professionals, in my opinion. Because I was there. I was looking for bags. I was, I have, you know, I, it'd be nice to show my bag archive one day. I have probably every brand, you know, Toomey and every brand on eBags or Zappos yeah. or every website. I tried them all. And I just, none of them were, were dead on. You know, they had a little too much leather or the pockets were kind of weird or... I felt like my dad when I was walking through the airport. I was traveling a lot, you know, yeah. so I was using a lot of gear. And so I pushed forward the bag, not because I thought my vision was so awesome or unique. I saw an opportunity in the market that I thought there, mm -hmm. got, there has to be a lot of other people out there like me. Um, you know, like programmers and developers, you know, they love messenger bags. They carry it all the time. I see it all over San Francisco with mm -hmm. the company logo on the front. But there's the other side of every startup, which is the marketing business operations, outbound salespeople, and then most of them don't want a big silver buckle or, you know, all these kind of little embellishments. They, they need to walk into a meeting. They need to look like a professional. That was the single idea that I used to launch the bags. Now, everything else laddered up to that, you know, but everything had to be work and travel friendly. 
Um, and because I thought that was a real opportunity, and you know, pushed forward. And that's why every bag we make, we really think about where are people using us, how can they use it. Now it's evolved from that original idea. You know, now it's definitely a kind of just general purpose bags. Mm. Um, but you know, the branding, the choice of material, everything we chose was, yeah, you can still walk to work with this, but you know, if you need to, to if you're going to go traveling over the weekend, or if you need to jump on a bike, or if you need to, you know, get onto mass transit, it's good for everything. It'll work for everything. Mm. Um, so, you know, you have to make those decisions early on. You know, it comes down to how heavy is the bag, what kind of pockets do you have on it, is it water resistant? You know, all the decisions, they change the cost of the bag and then you're talking about different competitors every time you go up there or down. So yeah. I would say that's our key differentiator. We started as a backpack, you know, we started off the same thing, a platform which was standard issue military bags repurposed mm -hmm. for travel and business use. Um, and that's where the company is today. Yeah. You know, we still sell camera straps. I still love them. I, we're working on new camera gear. Um, but I would say the core of the business has evolved into wanting to become the de facto travel and commuting brand for working professionals or working creatives, mm -hmm. you know, people that... that now how did you, different. you know, in the digital world, you have the benefit of A-B testing really quickly, you know, bang up this website, send some traffic here. Like, there's, that can be so much easier when you're pushing pixels. But when you're pushing canvas, when you're pushing... Um, seamstresses and, and, and all this kind of um, manufacturing logistics and all that. How did you iterate? Because you, you just say that like it just happened overnight, like too much pockets here. And how did, I mean, what was the gestation period for the, the bag itself and how did you do customer development on physical good? I mean, a lot of people are, are probably making hardware products and they're just trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, I think the X factor is you need to have very self-aware and realistic product testers. and. You know, we're in the weeds and designing for a long time. It's easy to just kind of gloss over stuff. You need to really test the boundaries of your product. Now, I don't have a lot of product testers. In fact, I still do a majority of it myself. Going back to the iteration stamp viewpoint, I mean, that's one of the benefits of small batch manufacturing. We ask all the time, why don't you move production overseas? You can save money, and then we can save money as far as customers go. And it's like, well, you know, when you go overseas, you have to make a lot of them. And you probably need someone there, too, or you need to be there. And at the time, obviously running things the way I was doing, that was just not possible. So we have this foundation of making small batches and making a couple hundred at a time. And then if there's things we can update, then we'll update it. Mm -hmm. Now, we still do that today. You know, we just it's funny you mentioned that because I had a chat with uh, Alish Petek from uh, Cube Sensors, which is a, a temperature monitoring device. And he said the same thing. Yeah, his company's uh, close to his manufacturing operations in Eastern Europe. And, and for the same very reasons you just gave. Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. I mean, the, the large companies, the super experienced companies, they can do it because they've done it, they've gone through it. But for a lot of young companies, it's a huge step. And if you make a mistake, guess what? You've got a warehouse full of mistakes and yeah. a lot of them can't be fixed. You know, once you sew through certain fabrics, you can't sew through it again. Fortunately, we've never had a major disaster. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I do still travel to the factory quite a bit. And I did in the early days, not so much now. But, um, you know, those are relationships too. And so, you know, they, if you set the guidelines very early on, you know, they'll work with you. They'll, mm. They can try to fix it or they'll make you a new one or something. Mm. There's a lot of different ways. We've been very lucky. I've heard of other companies where you've got 
20 boxes of faulty mm. products. Um, and, you know, we've had little things in the past, but fortunately our core models have kind of sustained themselves. Mm. And, you know, we also have the military backpack to work on. You know, a lot of, for the first few bags, you know, we had existing bags that were like, this is the size and shape we like, this is the mm. way the handles work. You know, we weren't reinventing anything. We were combining things. And um, I think that's a, I mean, that's the world we live in. I think early on, yes, you should make everything from scratch. And if you're a true designer, that's what you do. I, I'm not a true designer, you know, I don't yeah. come from that background. So uh, I'm, I'm a marketing and branding guy. Yeah. And I know that actually working off existing designs and existing platforms helps a lot with your customers. They get it right away yeah. versus, oh, we have this whole new system. We think it's better than the hundreds of years this product has already been in development. Yeah. Uh, and you see a lot of similarities in tech like that, right? Yeah. You know, they're, they see certain gestures in popular apps and they're yeah. like, well, we should just work off of that. That's what people are comfortable with. It's yeah. gonna make our app work a lot smoother than saying, oh no, now our settings button is on the lower right, you know? Yeah. like. Um, designs the same way, I think, and so convention, convention, and, and familiarity, mm. and that helps people really come to the heart of what's different about your product. Mm. And so, with our bags, um, I don't know if we have that one aha. Uh, I think that we have a few that catch people's eyes, mm -hmm. and we're trying to do it more with the entire product itself versus a specific feature of the product now. Yeah. So, our, one of our newest products that we just released is like our gym work bag. So. Yeah. This goes back to you know, what we were discussing earlier about the brand coming alive or materializing yeah. more over time. Yep. You know, I, I had no idea we were going to make a gym work bag, but you know, our target market, our working professionals, we're in San Francisco, we, I, you and I see it all the time. People that are trying to squeeze a workout in in the middle of the day and they've got this two bag cross strap yeah. thing going on with their laptop bag and their gym bag. So um, that goes back to how the company's constantly evolving. We're trying to keep an eye on what people are carrying, how they're using their bags. And the Gym Worker bag has been one of our most popular bags and we've gotten a lot of attention for it because people have been looking for it for a long time and you know, other companies aren't really look, keeping that lens that we are. So mm. that's helped us kind of stay, keep the product mm. fresh, keep the brand growing. And, and to some extent, you could have stayed an entirely internet-based proposition, and but at some point you decided, you know what, I, I kind of need that retail presence, and you know it comes with the commitments of of rent and and stocking and and complementary products and all that stuff. I, you know, for for companies that are building hardware type uh, startups on Kickstarter and all, is there a need at some point to either like to to go there? It, it, it greatly depends on what kind of product you have. Yeah, it depends on what kind of channels you want to go through. Yeah. I would say, you know, like we don't work with Amazon, for example, because we want to drive traffic to our own site. Now in the hardware space, I know people in the hardware space, you have to work with Amazon. You have to get that, that familiarity, that kind of slick funnel. Yeah. So it's really on a case by case scenario. We went down the road because the wholesale was great, but you know, as you, I mean, obviously listeners can't see, but our product takes up a lot of space now. Yeah, we've got you know I I think we have like twenty four bag SKUs now, yeah. and there's no wholesale in the world that's going to carry all of them at this point. Yeah, you know if you go to Japan, and you get in a big department store. Yeah, you might get a little section to yourself. We're light years away from that. So, um, I saw this 
we were the online store is still our, our lion's share of our business. It's still very strong. The wholesale side is still pretty good, but obviously we take a huge hit in the margin by shipping out product at a discount. So the retail was adding another sales uh, revenue stream to our core business model, which is direct to consumer. And for our type of product that needs to be held and checked out and is kind of cumbersome to ship, it's a huge, huge plus for us. It's a huge part of our business and people need to touch and feel and see. The great part also of in-store sales is it is the opposite of when people shop online. And we've seen this pattern. You know, our busiest time in the online store is what? Sunday night, Monday morning, those kind of times. And the worst time is Friday night and Saturdays because people yeah. are in front of their computers of shopping, right? Yeah. It's when they're back at home um, that they're in front of the computers. And they're like, oh, let me look at this blog. Oh, I want to buy something. Yeah. So the store is the opposite, right? Saturdays yeah. are huge days, Sunday afternoons where people are out in these areas looking for stuff. Um, thinking of, you know, possibly making a few purchases here and there, it, it is a completely different revenue stream. And it was very terrifying for us to take the plunge, and I imagine a lot of people too. Which is why, actually, for, for our space here, we plan on sharing it. You know, we have a mm -hmm. pop-up space that was listed on Storefront right now. Um, we have, I think, five Kickstarter companies already, or former Kickstarter companies in here. So I know what it's like. I'm a bad guy, so I have to do it. Yeah. I know for the hardware guys, they're kind of, if not sure. Yeah. And so we try to really promote those independent designers and, yeah. and companies in here that can benefit from the platform. And we've got some really cool events in the future where I want to kind of unpackage the design process um, and let people kind of play and participate and hear about how the story goes because yeah. it's so important. It's yeah. so important for a young designer that you have a platform to work with. And so we've got a great space. We're in a great area, you know, very, we're very fortunate that we were lucky enough that, you know, to grow the company to the size where we can sustain a, a so store like this. Mm -hmm. And I would have loved it if someone gave me a, a hand when I was at a smaller phase, mm -hmm. online only. And so, you know, we'd like to extend that back to other people, other designers that, real designers, people that actually yeah. went to school and nice. <laughs> professionally trained for it, you know, yeah. not, not guys like me that kind of picked it up along the way, but, um, you know, I, I, I wear it as a badge of honor. I don't yeah. think it's anything to be ashamed of. And I would encourage anyone listening us to feel the same way, you know, yeah. that not jump two feet in and, you know, blow through your savings right away, but you know, set the right test up. I mean, our first strap, run of camera straps was $150, yeah. you know? I, w I did an interview a little while back with, with a, a website, and the comment at the end, the interview was based on, you know, what to think about before leaving your job to start a brand. And one of the, the main comments was, you didn't talk about funding, how do you get funding? And my response to that was, well, hey, that's not really something you post on a blog post, mm. by the way. I don't know if you knew, <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. You don't want really to talk about that. But um, there are models that aren't as cash heavy in the early days that you can find and you can mm. execute on. Um, crowdfunding's great. You know, mm. a lot of people are getting their ideas out there with crowdfunding. Mm. Or you can, what we did, we made things domestically in small batches and we made a, a simple product that wasn't cumbersome to store that, you know, we could sell direct very easily and that was how we got started so there's that version for everybody else you just have to go out and find it and a lot of people unfortunately 
they get impatient. They don't want to wait. They want to kind of get the get right to the end. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they 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 don't want to try to find that. I guess. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good good uh, transition to the final portion of our typical podcast, uh, which is a shameless plug. <laughs> and you know, in the past, is we've had people plug charities or plug events. Uh, we had uh, somebody plug a, a summit for CTOs. Um, what, what, what are you passionate about that you'd love for people to, to come and maybe gather around or, or go to or visit? Of course, your store is included. You should, if you're here in San Francisco, come visit Richard's store. You know, I, I don't have a very clear area to send people to. I, I'd like, I'd say, I'd probably like to leave people with a word of encouragement. Yeah as far as not feeling trapped and finding, to continue staying, to find ways to pursue their passions and do the things they want to do in the right way. I mean, we, we're involved in a few charities and uh, we also support a few local independent brands that we're huge fans of. You can, you know, you can find it all on the Dispatch website and, and things like that. Um, you know, we're a part of SF Made, which is a, a great nonprofit that's trying to bring manufacturing back to SF. Unfortunately, we don't do our bags sewing in San Francisco. We do um, a few of our other product lines here. But um, yeah, I think, I think the whole movement of bringing manufacturing back to San Francisco or back to California or back to the United States, it's a great movement. You're supporting mm. large communities um, and it's very important. But yeah, going back to, I think the one thing that I can leave people with that I, I could say with much more confidence is to, you know, keep trying and to, you know, Obviously, you have to be very self-aware, very realistic mm. about when some ideas aren't winners. And like I mentioned, I had two gloriously failed uh, ventures beforehand. But mm. you know, I meet a lot of young people that want to start their own companies, that want to to start their own business. And you know, I would encourage them to keep keep going for it and keep obtaining the skills that'll help them get there. Mm. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. I mean, it's. It's great to sit down sometime and, and share the story and, mm. and have a platform like this to to you know let people know that how companies are, are getting things done these days. Cool. Well, thanks for that, Rich. And uh, if you if you guys go to dispatch.com, you can read more about his his company, his values, and, and the products they have. Uh, until next time, bye. <laughs>